From Zero to One for Women. I'm Lisa Richards, the host. Episode 5. This episode is to inspire women to do as our foremothers did in the previous decades and show some grit. We have it easier. Women in the 50s had to fight for a place in universities and for a job, and the numbers were vastly different back then. There were many more obstacles, and yet they persevered. I'm not saying the gains justify any slowdown. I'm just saying we need to channel our efforts now into changing not the workplace participation of women so much, but the workplace itself. The workplace is fashioned to cater to the male pattern of fertility in terms of flexibility of work, place of work, promotions and their timing. They're still typically in the mid and late 30s, just at the point when women are needing to have their first child, having left it as late as they possibly could. There's a reason for that, of course. You've acquired the necessary skills and training. But hopefully, technology will bring that forward. So what we need to do is change the workplace so that women can still be promoted at that point, even if it coincides with starting or expanding a family. So it isn't a stark choice between taking that promotion or settling for a part-time job that doesn't match your skills or earnings trajectory. The alternative, to throw up your hands and give in to a superficially attractive cop-out of why bother having children at all, as the nihilists do, is really a defeatist attitude. Let's recap the positives. The one advantage of the pandemic was to herald in a widespread acceptance of remote working. It was foist upon us because we were in a government-mandated lockdown, so we had to do it. Companies got tech-savvy if they weren't to enable employees to work effectively from home. It was either embrace technology or go insolvent. This was a game changer. It was a huge step on the ladder to making workplaces a lot more family friendly. Of course, the advantage was negated by school closures, which were widespread, which meant women couldn't actually work. They had to multitask as school teachers, which was difficult. But the fact remains that remote working is now today, not just grudgingly accepted, but ubiquitous. Most jobs on LinkedIn are described as hybrid. The government has also brought in flexible working laws to ensure there is no automatic return to the previous 100% in office attendance. For reasons often cited as related to training and culture, some big companies, particularly banks, have recently mandated 40% office attendance, but the fact remains that hybrid working is the new normal. That's not going to change. The Fair Work Commission has endorsed that a company can mandate a 40% in-office attendance for different reasons, but that is still a far cry from the previous 100%. That old work environment had men and women in professions working really long hours, especially in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, counting themselves lucky if they walked in the door at 8pm. Now employees can leave earlier, miss the dead traffic time and get home and work remotely if need be to supplement around the family environment, children arriving home, having dinner and going to bed. It's not to say it isn't stressful multitasking those different roles, particularly if you have very young children. But flexibility is always going to equate to freedom for the individual to decide what works best. It will be a question of companies either catering more to the female pattern of fertility and family environment or attempting to require more in-office attendance and lose those employees who will value working from home. And not just women, but men too. Obviously, the main reason is caring for young children, but there are plenty of others. Some people want to invest time in simply other pursuits, not just around a carer role, but sports, hobbies, travels, studies, etc. The point is you can tailor your job around your desires if you can persuade management. 
At least that is the potential. It's aspirational in some cases because different managers certainly have different tolerances to timing of work and flexibility around when it is done and how it is done, in person or harnessing technology remotely to do meetings. The challenge for people today is to make it work and make it appealing for a boss to say yes. I think this is where we need a healthy dose of pragmatism. Job sharing, part-timing, hybrid working requires extra skills that employees don't necessarily have, and certainly in the past did not need to have to enjoy success. My first boss in the law firm had all his emails printed out, didn't use a computer at all. Now it is very clear that someone who embraces technology will have infinitely better prospects than someone who doesn't and their career will thrive. So collaboration, effective communication, discipline and technological skills are needed in spades. The more you leverage those skills, the more flexibility you can successfully bring to a role and the more convincing you are. If you don't have these skills and your performance drops and your contribution to company profits drops, then realistically, how can you expect buy-in from bosses, those in power to change the work environment? Profits will always be key. Companies don't exist post-insolvency, so it will always be a key driver. And if you don't succeed, you'll be let go. That's the nature of a free capitalist market. And to attribute that to discrimination against employees who need flexibility is just adopting a victim mindset. You may be convinced it has some truth in it. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it doesn't advance your cause. And I think the propensity for people to adopt this kind of mindset today in part explains management's reluctance to universally permit more hybrid working and remote working. Employers don't want to be defending themselves against attacks and litigation around discrimination, unfair dismissal, etc. And small companies can't even afford to dip their toe in the water if the victim mindset is going to be all pervasive. Women don't need a victim agenda. We have remote working. We have technology. We have the government publishing reports on female participation in company positions across the full spectrum. Worker bees, managers, C-suite. This information is now in the public domain, so things are changing if we wish to harness the positives. I'm not saying there are no obstacles, it's not perfect. I'm saying we can change the workplace and we are in a fantastic position to do so. In my view, everything as much as possible should be merit-based. If you are promoted as female to a managerial position and have a baby on the horizon, come up with a strategy to continue working, to change the nature of the role and to suit this change in your life. Because then the company will be on board with this and will be if you do a stellar job. You're responsible for this. Of course, you can't be mediocre. You have to do a good job to overcome any reluctant management views about how it will work. But that's the case with trailblazers because you are always on show. Everyone knows that Deadwood, which is a derogatory name given to employees who are lackluster on coast, can hide in big organisations, but not in smaller ones. And certainly not when they single themselves out for a special role with a different structure. But it needs to be done. We need trailblazers for this. It does pave the way and help every other female who comes after you. And if you can develop those extra collaborative and technological skills that are needed, you will shine and you will be promoted. It's never been a better time. Take this article. If your organisation is not as open to this, then of course you may need to move jobs. And I know that is easier said than done, depending upon the socioeconomic environment you find yourself in. I just think that so-called feminists who don't want children, the dinks, actually make it very easy for employers to ignore women and family. 
They are essentially anti-women and anti-children, and they make it easy for an organisation to cater simply to males. The more extreme are even anti-human because they would prefer extinction rather than have the workplace change to favour women having babies, something they see as something to be ignored, discouraged and ridiculed. It's really insidious and it's so backward looking. Before in the 1950s, women were chained to domestic chores and fought back to get into the workplace and for the next decades worked very hard to change it. Recently, with COVID, a huge advantage fell into our lap, changing the work environment to fit better with a flexible home life, whether that be a family or other care environment or simply a lifestyle focused on something outside of work, but important to the individual. And it is the individual that is key here. Sadly, the ridicule and pushback for tailoring the workplace to help families is coming from other women and men, adopting a nihilistic view of the world. They are really anti-family. Their social agendas and priorities are vastly different, even though it's not the majority. The majority of people have babies, and so this is the imperative for the majority. I think we are getting mired in subgroups to distract us from the main task. We need to change the workplace so it works better for the majority, and that's family-friendly, unapologetically. I'm not demeaning people who remain child-free, but I'm not going to mistake the facts because it is more compassionate to do so. We are so mired these days in massaging facts on compassionate grounds that we can't even agree on what the facts are. We are either distracted with the lie that the majority of people actually do not form the majority or that the minority are not comparatively infinitesimally small. For the majority of workers, a child-friendly work platform is the one they are most interested in. If you held two seminars in a workplace, one about child-friendly work policies, and one about a particular subgroup-friendly policy where the subgroup numbers are a very small proportion of the workplace, you know in advance which will be better attended. And you have to prioritise in a workplace as you do in your own personal life. Work will always be a reflection of society and you can't create an artificial feedback loop. When you think about it, it's also much easier for companies, profits-wise, to promote the very small subgroups because it's such a small percentage of the workplace and therefore represents a very small investment and a small risk. Think about the cost of rolling out a firm-wide policy that affects nearly everyone, as opposed to just a few people. It's company virtue signaling, getting brownie points for doing very little. It's a lot scarier to affect a change that everyone will want to be part of. The risk is far greater and of course the rewards are too. I remember a senior female partner boss in my old, my first law firm, kiboshing a meeting that senior female lawyers arranged to talk about how to make the workplace more family friendly. It was 1994. It went down like a lead balloon with the female boss. And the irony wasn't lost on the female cohort attending the meeting that our female head was sabotaging any prospect of changing the workplace to cater better to females. She did so disingenuously on the flimsiest of pretexts, namely that men hadn't been invited. Sure, she had a point. Men had not been invited. Men can be primary caregivers, but this was the 90s. It wasn't the case then. Her real agenda was to make sure the females never agitated for these policies again. It was seen as a business risk because the meeting was so well attended. If successful, it could have resulted in changes being agitated for family-friendly policies. You have to remember back then it was just expected that women adapted to the male work environment. And for women who sacrificed all, they were sometimes the most reluctant to make it easier for the next generation, having hauled themselves through fire and brimstone. You can't expect if your subgroup numbers one to get traction. 
that because you're in the minority, you need special treatment. You need to align yourself differently. You might need to join a more merit-based faction. And in a sense, because capitalism is at work, every subgroup needs, even males and females, need to have a profit imperative. You need to show how catering to your subgroup, and for the majority, it's family-friendly, doesn't stagnate your company's profit growth so you can no longer attract the best talent and the best clients. It will always be the biggest motivator. Profits. And it's a good one, like merit, because it's subjective. It doesn't depend on a subjective point of view. The only industries seriously peddling a subgroup identity rather than just using it to deflect, deflect or distract from bigger challenges are those industries that are political or cultural. So in media, lies are often headlined because they get clicks. The more outrageous, the better. And if you don't believe me, look at this announcement in the Sydney Morning Herald on page 12. Think of your favourite Christmas movies. Elf is one of mine. There are so many. Well, this year, the Christmas comedy movie that opened in cinemas this week is said to be a twist on the classic. Maybe not twist, but twisted, because the article says, and I quote, this movie taps into what Australia looks like today. And what the media would have you believe is that it's a trans woman coming home for Christmas to, you guessed it, a family more messed up than ever she knew. Sister addicted to pills? Let's just skirt over the fact that to change your gender involves so many pills and surgery it would make your head spin. A brother tied up with gangsters and parents with messy secrets. You've got to hand it to Australian film. They really succeed in proliferating lies. The typical Australian family does not have the obligatory trans man or woman or gangster child. That's completely fabricated, atypical. Sure, no family's perfect, but this is just plain wrong. The media would love to have a trans person in every family, but the facts just don't fall that way. How inconvenient, so let's just pretend that it's still relatable. This is maybe the only industry, and acting is fiercely competitive, remember, where a budding actor who started performing in just 2019, fresh out of uni, could have a meteoric rise from uni productions to the big stage on the back of gender identity. Well, good for her. She's found a niche, like the sporting trans women scooping the pool, and she will no doubt exploit it, as will others. But what about all the other female actresses, like the female swimmers? You don't need to be trans. But it's the media it generates and the virtue signalling, the money pours in. I think there'll be a backlash because it's, the, it's one thing to create a new subgroup, but it's entirely another to peddle lies that it's something to aspire to and to identify with for personal gain. It involves surgery, pills. It's money for jail for a whole industry of sycophants, from the medical profession to the media and some corporate, sadly. But it erodes trust because we are sold lies and faith in our institutions, political, medical, cultural, everything. If these institutions want to erode family values and what's good for individuals and society, then we are headed for a dystopian future. And we just don't have the luxury. We have more important issues like geopolitical security issues, domestic issues, tamp down productivity, rising inflation. As always, when these things bite, there'll be a correction. But it's sad to see how whenever we have relative calm, it's channeled into the wrong agendas for really short-sighted gain. So get out there and be a positive and inspirational force for change. I hope to interview women like the one featured in the article on my episodes because I think women like that can offer some great mentoring. She's also relatable. People who are in the workforce, young women, can look to her for guidance in their own lives. She's not CEO, she's a manager, and she can talk about what worked and what didn't. I am 100% positive she didn't walk into management with a victim mindset.
saying, I'm a woman, I'm discriminated against on the basis of family commitments, I want to whine and have you publicly apologise, heck, I may even sue you. No. She would have gone in with a solid plan and said, I want to be judged by my results. That's subjective, measurable and rational. It's very appealing to company bosses to say yes. They retain profit growth, a good employee, and they get a few brownie points for marketing. She's their poster child for mothers in the workplace, which has much better marketing potential than a trans woman, someone from a very small subgroup. It's also much better marketing than having someone in HR spout forth about family-friendly policies when you've got mothers sleeping under their desks, collapsing from the stress of having work and home fall apart. You always want someone in your office saying what it's like, what the reality is. In the 90s in law firms, this was not uncommon. The fact I saw it a few times unintended by the females in question breaking down under the strain and ultimately quitting meant it was happening even more behind the scenes. I saw it because I was in a difficult profession, law and banking, high profits, high stress, and it was mostly the women who broke, not because females are weak, but because they have this dual role and back then much less help and support. It's still a challenge today, but we have these other advantages that we need to harness to keep the momentum for change. I don't want to see in 2030 the childlessness epidemic in full swing. I don't want to see an underclass develop for those employees with dual roles, work and carer duties. I really think we need to change the workplace now to promote family life and life outside of work and have it so inextricably interwoven into the fabric of the work environment that we never lose sight of this imperative. It's the one thing that trumps profits, actually, even in a capitalist society, to value continued human existence. It really is a basic imperative. We are not going to be caring about trans rights when robots are taking our jobs, if we don't become technologically savvy. That's why they always say a war refocuses responsibilities. We need higher ideals, and they are truth and love, and robots can't aspire to those high ideals. It's a uniquely human trait to have faith in these ideals. So we need to instill that as a main priority because there's a huge risk of getting sidetracked with non-issues. Gender dysmorphia to me is a non-issue for the majority of people to distract us from the real challenges we face. We have existential threats that are hitting us from all directions. An unstable geopolitical landscape, Gen AI in full swing, a lot of social and political division, basically a lot of challenges to distract us from the big picture which is our continued human existence. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like it, hit subscribe.